Father, thank You for this season and for this time when you can remember that the most stupendous act of history occurred and it was the resurrection from the dead never before observed and it's one of your grand surprises in history and we thank you that we have the peace and the opportunity this coming Sunday to remember that great event and we pray that you would uh, give us thankful hearts and give us a sense of focus that we may be occupied with the risen Lord Jesus Christ more than we are occupied with the things of this world we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, tonight we're going to go obviously into a new event, and so therefore it's time that we spent just a few minutes at the beginning in kind of like a review where we've come from. And we've looked at two events, and I'd like to review at least two events. We've looked at actually three. The call of Abraham so far this year, uh, the exodus in Mount Sinai, and we try to capsulize these, these events because um, one of the things you want to take away from this kind of an approach to Scripture is a sense of being able to reason your way through and associate Scripture in a powerful way with the big problems of life so that the big problems of life never float around your brains and your hearts um, loose. They always float around, if they float around, uh, solidly surrounded by scripture frameworks. So, <clears throat> the Exodus, just kind of thinking about that for a moment, remember the big idea behind the Exodus is that God, at that point, brought into existence a counterculture. And he's never stopped building a counterculture from the time of the Exodus on through history. Why is he building a counterculture? Because he's repudiated Noahic civilization. Noahic civilization began here. We call it just civilization. But biblically, what we call civilization is Noahic civilization. It's the civilization God instituted through Noah, through the sons of Noah, to all of our racial backgrounds and our cultural backgrounds. <clears throat> but that civilization became paganized very shortly and could not fulfill spiritually. So the big idea behind the Exodus is not just a Sunday school story. The big idea behind the Exodus is that it's a message that the grandeur of civilization, the arts, the sciences, and the technology, beautiful and compelling though they may be, do not fulfill the needs of man in his heart. There's something missing. And no matter how long you live, uh, we have to relearn that again and again. Sometimes it's a sad way. Sometimes God has to take civilization away. As, for example, the believers in Albania right now, watching their country fold, fold up and destroy itself in two weeks. I mean, that's a shock. Um, sometimes it's in prosperity, when people have the finest of everything. And they still aren't satisfied because it's something nagging. And what is that? That's because we're men and women made in God's image. We're theomorphic. We're made in his form. And because we are, we are not ever going to be satisfied unless we have a personal relationship with him. So the Exodus is a dramatic illustration of the fact that God knows this and he's working behind the scenes of history to one day create a divine counterculture 
That is, a civilization having the elements of the Noahic civilization, but in addition having something else, and that's spiritual life. Um, we mentioned that the Exodus is a picture of judgment salvation. So when we think of salvation, remember, we covered several points back here. We said that, uh, think of the story of the Exodus. That was the story of that God was gracious before he judged. He didn't suddenly lower the boom, but he was gracious and forbearing. Um, second thing was that when he did lower the boom, he lowered it perfectly. It wasn't a statistical smearing of results with accidents here and there. There was a one-to-one -one correspondence between the saved and the lost. There wasn't any half-saved or accidentally saved or accidentally lost. There were those who had blood on their door who did not suffer loss of their firstborn. Um, there were those who did not have blood on their door and did suffer the loss of their firstborn, not only their firstborn in their human area, but also their animals. So obviously, there were two classes of people. Either they had blood on the door or they did not have blood on the door. There were not three classes or four classes. There were only two classes. Which leads us to another feature that we always see about salvation. That is, there's only one way to be saved. And we've gotten two excellent ideas out of this. When next time somebody challenges you or you're in a discussion, maybe with your family or friends, and, and I know this sounds bigoted because it did to me when I was a non-Christian. Why is it Christianity has this obnoxious trait of saying that it and it alone is the way, the truth, and the life? When other religions are more open-minded, I mean, the Eastern religions say a little bit here and a little bit there and sort of a you know, religious cafeteria. Uh, we have two pictures now in these events of the oneness and uniqueness of salvation. Remember what the first one was? The flood of Noah. One and only one boat. One and only one way to be saved. What's the one way in the Exodus? Blood in the door. There's only one way to deal with these things. Why is that? Because God designed it that way. So you have to listen to him in order to, because he's the one that's judging. Then we said that in both the case of Noah and the Exodus, man and nature are both involved. Salvation is not complete until more than just the spiritual part is taken care of. Hence, Easter. And hence, the fact that we're not totally saved until both our spirit and our body are saved. And the resurrection is a story of the salvation of the body. And Christianity alone deals with this in any substantive way. Look at all the other religions. They deal with a resurrection. Ever hear that? Resurrection is unique unique to biblical faith. It's another one of these unique things that we've seen, again, as we work through these things. What do we say was unique about our faith here? Create a creature distinction. No other religions outside of the Bible have to create a creature distinction. What do we say with the fall? What was the uniqueness of our faith? The uniqueness of our faith was that we and we alone have bracketed evil. We and we alone have limited evil. All the other people believe in an eternal existence of evil. That's why they kill themselves. The flood is the story where we have the picture of salvation, the uniqueness there. The Noahic covenant, we introduce the idea of a contract, and that's unique. Outside of the Bible, you don't have people making contracts with God or God making contracts with people. 
See, these are these are essence. These are the the neat little features that show our faith to be true. And they are things that are totally missing in everybody else's approach. Only in the scriptures do we have these unique characteristics. And we want to drill ourselves so again and again we remember this. Because they're the features of our God. <clears throat> the call of Abraham. What was unique there? <clears throat> the fact that we have an electing, sovereign, personal God. That history is going to be His way, His personal way. It's not run by a computer, thank God. And it's not a pile of marbles. It is run by the personal will of the personal creator. The exodus, the unique birth, and we said uh, in political science way or historical way, the uniqueness of the exodus is, it's the only um, revolution of a group of people out of a civilization without an army. Now you think about that. It's the only, it's the strangest revolution that man has ever witnessed in history. All other revolutions, all other freedom movements have always involved armed conflict. This is the only one that didn't. And why is that? Because God was going to show that it's his tools, not man's tools, by which this is accomplished. We had came to Mount Sinai, and we said again, this is a unique thing. Have you ever heard of a civilization or a nation anywhere in the history of man that ever heard the law may uh, heard the law being spoken from a mountain by a god in the public audience of a million people? This wasn't a private vision. This was witnessed by the entire nation out loud in Hebrew so you could record it with your tape recorder. This is the god giving law and we have said in the Mount Sinai thing we just last week, we hurriedly finished all these things. Didn't do much justice to them because we went through them so fast. But we tried to show these three great truths that underlie our faith. The doctrine of revelation, the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of canonicity. Each one of these undergirds this. It's meaningless to talk about this as the authority unless you talk about this in the framework of that. Otherwise, this is no better than Shakespeare. No better than any other piece of great literature. The Bible has to be seen in the light of its own framework, its own frame of reference. And those three areas of truth give that frame of reference. We said that the doctrine of revelation, the important thing to remember about this Bible is that it insists that it is the conversation from God, the words of God, just as the word of God sounded on Mount Sinai, so the word of God through men's pens developed this book. So this is not just a human authored book. Human authors, yes, but they were necessary but not sufficient. God gave the Bible. So there we have revelation. That's why this is authoritative. If for example, skeptics like to call this when you get in a debate or discussion. They say, oh, you're, you're building your religious beliefs out of an old ancient book. Well, see, that's, it, it's an innuendo. It's a vocabulary. It's a name-calling device, an ancient book. Well, of course, the answer to that is that was two and two plus four equal... Uh, was two and two equal to four back in Babylonian times? Well, then it, we no longer follow that two plus two is four because that's an ancient truth. See, the issue is whether this is truth, not whether it's old.
Inspiration, we said, is a subset of revelation in that this book has captured some, but not all, revelation. And then the third truth we went through last time was canonicity. And that is that the church recognized, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, which scriptures were inspired and which aren't. But having said that, the Bible is always the authority over the church. And here's the good news of that is that it cuts human authority down to size. It doesn't matter who you are or who I am or who any of us are, that this stands above all of us. And so therefore, we never have to face in our lifetime, we can face claims of absolute power. And, and Christians down through the ages have had to do this, either from the church, the church claiming to be infallible, or the king claiming to be infallible. Those of you who were here two summers ago when I showed the film downstairs of uh, Cromwell, remember the revolution he led in England from which we got our freedoms, basically? What was the issue the Puritans faced in England? That the king claimed to be a divine authority. And he claimed to be the ultimate authority. And the Puritans said, no, this is the ultimate authority. And so they beheaded the king. Amazing situation that occurred. This was unheard of. Nobody ever dared to come up to the kings that had divine rights and cut their head off. And it wasn't done in a riot. See, that's the difference between the way the Puritans went about things and the way riots go about things. And the Puritan, remember in that film, you saw them debating in Parliament, passing parliamentary procedures and so forth and so on. It was all done uh, in a very rigorous and very orderly way. Okay, now tonight we're going to move on to another section of the Bible. So, I'm going to deal with the conquest and settlement period. And uh, this introduces a whole new set of books. And we want to kind of diagram it for you. For those of you who may be unfamiliar a little bit with the Old Testament, we've looked at the Pentateuch. We've looked here at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We'll kind of put all these together here because it's all part of the law. These five books constitute the Torah, or in the New Testament it's called the Law. You'll see three words in the New Testament describe the Old Testament. Law, prophets, and writings. Those are the three Jewish words that describe it. And we're finishing up with the first part of the Old Testament, the Law. The law sets forth the foundation of the Old Testament. Everything else is a follow-on or a follow-up to the Pentateuch. Now, tonight, we're going to deal with a period of history that starts with Numbers, it starts in Deuteronomy, it continues through Joshua, it continues to Judges. So, this period of history looks like this on a timeline. Here's 2000 B.C., that's Abraham. Uh, Here is 1000 B.C., that's David. Halfway between here, about 1400, is the Exodus. And from the Exodus period on through up close to the time of David is the period of history we're looking at. During that interval of world history, there's not any sign of a superpower bothering Israel. There's not one mention of Egypt in existence. This is why I mentioned to you the fact that 
I'm personally persuaded there's something radically wrong with the way we're looking at Old Testament, at secular history. Because right in here, during all this time, it's like it's in the, Europe in the Middle Ages. There's no superpower, it's just feudal kingdoms here and there. And in the midst of this, we have the most controversial section of the Bible. Um, I don't know probably of any other section of the Bible that's more ridiculed, uh, apart from Genesis 1, than this area. Joshua, first part of Deuteron- uh, last part of Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Judges all contain holy war. And that's what we want to look at. We said this, this year... Uh, all these truths that we're discovering have a theme of disruption to them. The call of Abraham was a disruption. Exodus was a disruption. Mount Sinai was a disruption. And now conquest and settlement surely is a disruption. Because now we get to face the problem of a bloody, messy war. And what is this doing in the pages of God's Word? Three key criticisms of the Bible come out of this period. These are three things you'll hear out of the mouths of any knowledgeable non-Christian. Whether they've read the Bible or not, they've been told about these things. And when we read the Bible, we have to be honest, these three things are there. One of them is genocide. There is genocide in the Scriptures. An awful genocide. And we have to deal with why. It's there. We can't debate it. You can't hide it. It's there. So now, what do we say? Second thing about it is, it is the most obvious example of intolerance the history of the world has ever seen. Certain things are tolerated and other things are not tolerated. Anybody that differs is killed and destroyed. Why is there such intolerance? A third thing is why was there a divine insistence against peaceful coexistence? Why was peaceful coexistence considered to be evil? Now, these are three stunning problems that every Christian has to come to grips with. Genocide, intolerance, and an aversion to peaceful coexistence. Okay. What I've tried to do in this chapter, you'll see as it unfolds in the notes, I've taken seven examples from this period of 400, uh, 300 years, 300 plus years. I've taken seven examples, not because there are, there are seven, there's plenty more. I guess I just picked seven because I like the number or something. Sounds biblical. Um, so I picked seven key events because each of these seven events shows some aspect of these three problems. Because remember, our aim here is to come to grips. Something our God is telling us here. Uh, This is a lesson about our faith. Whenever we get clobbered with criticism over something, it's, it's probably time that we sat down and reflected and not done the very dangerous things of pretending it's not there or trying to hide it. No, we just let it all hang out. Now let's all get it out on the table here and let's see what we're talking about. And that's what we're going to do. So we're going to take seven examples that involve these three problems. Genocide, intolerance, and an aversion to peaceful coexistence. Exactly the opposite of what you consider to be ethical behavior. 
And not only is this opposite to what you'd normally consider to be ethical and Christian behavior, but it is commanded by God. So, we're going to take these seven things, and I'm going to... Uh, as each one of these seven involves passages of Scripture in Exodus. Some of it involves passages in Deuteronomy. I always give you the passages here, and I recommend that you look at these chapters, because in these nights with just an hour, we can only go do dips and dabs in it. But maybe we can whet your appetite so you read through some of this stuff. Um, so the first two we're going to deal with tonight. And these involve things that are going on in the book of Exodus. If you look at the bottom, page 1, so-called. Uh, Exodus 32 to 34, Deuteronomy 9 to 12. And if you turn over to uh, page 2, again, it's Exodus 34 and Numbers 33. So those are the central passages that we're going to work with from now to the end of the class tonight. Let's turn to uh, Exodus 32. Now, I don't know how many of you were here the night that I showed the slides of Mount Sinai. I think most of you were here when you saw that. Do you remember one of those pictures that I showed you was shot um, back to the place where the people were toward Mount Horeb? And you remember I made the point that in the lower left side of the photograph, there was this little mound of dirt. And I said... History, the, the tales of history, the oral traditions say that that little mound of dirt off to the side of Mount Horeb was where the event of Exodus 32 took place. And I said, we get there. Well, tonight we're here. Don't have the picture here, but I should probably have brought it. But um, here's, the, here's the scene. So let's look at Exodus 32. Uh, let's look at first the first four verses. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said, Tear off your gold rings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So it's party time while Moses is up on the top of Mount Sinai. So what we have to do is look at what's going on here. And uh, there are a number of things, and we can't get into all the details um, in this chapter. Someday maybe we can have a chance to teach this verse by verse, but it's really got some neat stuff in it. One of the things, of course, right in verse 1, that you want to look and read between the lines, there's something wrong with the authority structure here, do you notice? When God called the nation out, he left them with an authority structure. And you remember the authority structure was the elders, and it was Moses and Aaron. Now, all of a sudden, in place of that kind of a situation, we suddenly developed a democracy. And now what we have is we have the people coming to Aaron. And of course, that isn't recognized too well by us because we've all been brought up to believe in democracy. And yet, when you read further in the chapter, um, 
verse 21, Moses confronts Aaron over this. And look at the conversation that goes on here. It's kind of neat. Moses says to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Well, now, what they did to Aaron was they put political pressure on him. Notice how verse 1 goes. The people saw and they assembled themselves about Aaron. So, I mean, here he is and he's got all the people ticked off. So, you've got the whole group of people trying to tell him what to do. Yet, in verse 21, Moses goes back to Aaron and says, Hey, I don't care if all the people wanted to do this. You were supposed to be the leader. How come you caved in? And then Aaron said, do not, and this is the cl- one of the classic, this is the, one of the classic excuses of Scripture. Look at this one closely. This is a ripper. Moses said to Aaron, what do the people do to you? And Aaron says, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. And they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this man Moses who brought us up in the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And I said to him, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, threw it in the fire, and out came the calf. Now, you've got to catch the humor of Scripture because it, 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 there's a lot of humor, particularly in the Old Testament. And you just have to learn to recognize it because it's, you know, it's not terribly overt. But it's there. And the more modern translations have, have been, had more fun with these passages of translating in a more relaxed way because when the King James was translated in the Old Testament, it was so serious and pious that, I mean, it's all, you, know, you think God spoke in the King James English and it just kind of ponderously goes on. But if you have the opportunity sometime to read in the original language, you see it's not that at all. A lot of the Bible is really written in the language of the street. In fact, it's very kind of unreligious and very crude in places. And it's, um, the only conclusion you can come to is that because God, to God, for God, apparently it's more important that he communicate than the formats that he uses to communicate because communication is so important for him to get his message to us. And if he has to use the language of the street, he uses the language of the street. It's not that he's slighting quality language. It's just that that's the way people speak, that's the way people understand. But this is one of those neat little humorous jabs that, you know, Aaron's saying, hey, I couldn't help it. I mean, just threw it in the fire and out came the calf. Gee. So, the idea is that something's out of control right at the beginning. And if you look now in verse 25, Moses picks up on that. And Moses saw the people were out of... This is the, um, the new ASV, I guess it is. And when Moses saw the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And then he did some nasty things to the Levites. He ordered them to go in and kill people. Now, this is a, kind of a bloody mess here. But you know what's happening? The issue is that this nation is going to be run under an authority structure. And you don't like it, you can get off. It's basically what's happening to the Israelites right here. And they're out of control in verse 1. And so Moses takes drastic measures with the Levites to bring them back under control. And this has tremendous ramifications later for the doctrine of sanctification. Because when we get into this... I'm going to go through all the, the blood and the gore here so we see the, what the passage is saying. Then we want to come over to this doctrine. This is the doctrine that grows out of this. And that's the doctrine of sanctification. 
or spiritual growth in our life. And somehow, that doctrine is tied to the answer to those three questions. Why is there genocide? Why is there intolerance? And why is there an aversion to peaceful coexistence? The answers to those three problems bear directly upon our Christian growth. All right, let's look further. Let's ask ourselves, as we look at verse 3 and 4, particularly verse 4, what have the people done by the end of verse 4? Now, obviously, they've built a calf. But can any of you, based on what we've talked about in the past, can any of you see through the idol to what has actually happened here by way of um, what's the force, what's be, what kind of a spirit is being revealed through this act of pressuring Aaron to make an idol? And particularly, what kind of spirit is it that defines that clause found in the end of verse 4, quote, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now let's look at that sentence a moment. Let's analyze it. This is your God. And then, pronoun type clause here, you who brought you out of Egypt. Now, is this part of the sentence correct? Never mind the God. But is that, does that clause describe real history? Yes. They, were they brought out of Egypt? Yes, they were brought out of Egypt. The discussion that they're having here has, has not to do with the event of coming out of Egypt in the sense of the raw basic fact. They all know they came out of Egypt. We'll call this a little piece of data. Now, in verse 1 and verse 4, what do you notice that there's a conflict, apparently, in the interpretation of the data? They're not denying the data. Today, we, the critics of the Bible even deny the piece of data. They deny the exodus ever happened. But these people live too close to it to deny it. So they're holding on to the data. They believe the historical event happened. But what's, what's their interpretation of the event according to verse 1 and verse 4? There's a conflict of some sort going on between verse 1 and verse 4. What is it? Anybody catch it? Okay. Verse 1, it's human beings that did it. Verse 4 is a God did it. But now let's examine a little more carefully the same sentence. This is the God. Who is making this assertion? Who is designing, defining, and naming this God? Is the God doing the naming or is man doing the naming? It's man that does the naming. What event have we studied uh, in the fall, the climactic event of the Noahic civilization, where they found the same kind of language? Anybody remember? Built the Tower of Babel that we may make, we may make a name for ourselves. You see, that spirit of autonomy, that's the spirit of sin. That's pride. And that's what's in all our hearts. That's what our flesh loves. 
we want to define and carve out some area that we control. We want control. We want to rule. We want security. And we want it on our terms. That is the essence of sin. And you see it in the Tower of Babel. And you see it right here. They faced themselves with this event. But the event couldn't possibly be the Creator doing it. This history has got to be explained some other way. Either by a political explanation, Moses, a sociological explanation, or a religious explanation. But it's got to be explained in some way so the God of the Scriptures certainly couldn't have done it. I mean, if, if, if we found, with this spirit, you could have a videotape of the resurrection of Jesus. And as one person said, oh, strange things happen in the universe. Now think about it for a minute. You could actually have an evidence of Jesus Christ's physical body rising out of the tomb on Easter. And somebody could come up with that. Huh, funny, things, strange things happen. You see how that knocks out that the spirit of autonomy always tries to create an explanation for data and history, what, no matter how stupid it sounds to us or to us when we're filled with spirit, sounds stupid. When we're in the flesh, it doesn't, because we like to go along with it. So here we have us defining our own meaning. Now you can take that and apply it to any point in your life. I can apply it to my life. Is that when we see sin operating, we're doing the same thing. We're engaging exactly the same thing. We're not making the golden calf, but we're really saying, well, this all happened because of this and this and that. And, you know, God's distant. He doesn't listen to prayer. He's not involved in this. This, you just let me handle this. And we do the same thing. So, right at the start of this whole thing, right at the mountain, the very foot of the mountain, when God's giving the law, this is going on down below. What is the whole point of the law? It's a revelation of God's lordship and the servant-master relationship. It's authority, isn't it? So up on the top of the mountain, God is speaking and beginning His rule over this people. And while He is speaking, I mean, look, you've got to catch the irony of this event. At exactly the hour that he's talking to Moses about ruling this people, the people are autonomously interpreting their existence to such an extent they're defining the nature of God himself. On the top of the mountain, God is defining reality. On the bottom of the mountain, man is defining the reality. Both are making ultimate statements. The two cannot coexist. One or the other has to yield because they're both universals. God says, I am the authority and I define the meaning of life. The people down below are saying, we are the authority and we define the meaning of life. Now put those two together and get coexistence. You can't. Those two principles are at war eternally. And that's the nature of what we're going to see in this holy war. Okay, let's read further. Verse 7, verse 8. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You see, it's kind of interesting. God puts them with Moses. 
But watch what happens. Now Moses was an interesting person. All these guys have very interesting biographies. If you've ever done a, a study of the life of Moses, or any one of these men, it's so neat and encouraging to see them, because at one time you see them in all their grandeur, and the next moment you see them falling flat in their face, and it's so comforting to realize that that happens to every one of us. And so, here you're going to see one of the great moments in Moses' life. Magnificent moment. The Holy Spirit works through this man in such a way that he reveals not just something in his life, but through his life he reveals something of our, that eventually is, comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord said to, these, to Moses, verse 9, I have seen this people. They are an obstinate people. Now look at this verse 10. Let me alone, and my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Now think back for a minute. What was the promise to Abraham? The promise to Abraham was that there would be a seed, an eternal seed. Abraham had son, uh, Abraham through Jacob had, had great-grandsons, which be, became the tribes of, of uh, Israel. One of those tribes, you know which one it was, was promised that it would have to rule the scepter. The scepter would never depart from this particular tribe. Anybody know what the tribe was? Judah. The scepter would never depart from Judah. What tribe is Moses in? He's of the tribe of Levi. Now what God is threatening to do here, it's a, it's a tremendous moment at verse 10. God is threatening to violate his own word. God is threatening to undo his promises. The wrath of God is, is horrifying in this sense. I mean, here you have a, a, a revelation of God threatening to undo His very Word. That's an amazing statement. You can read this over and get very religious and pious and not even catch what's happening here. Uh, it's, it's an awful moment. In verse 11, Moses quickly comes in and he makes one of the most famous intercessions in all of Scripture. And this is a picture of the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he does. Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against thy people whom thou hast brought out of the land of Egypt? You see, God tests him. Notice how God's phrased it um, in um, verse 7. Your people and you brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then you have in verse 11, <clears throat> Moses goes back and says, no, they're your people and you brought them out of the land of Egypt. If you were a Hollywood filmmaker and you wanted to dramatize this and you were trying to write the script and you were trying to talk to your camera people and you're trying to organize this scene, what would be some things that you would instruct, try to highlight, in other words, the, the voice of God and the actors? What would be, just based on what you see in this conversation, um, what strikes you about this conversation that is unusual and kind of almost unbiblical, if we dare say that? What do you notice about Moses in the way he talks to God and the way God is talking to him? God is threatening him. God is... is is uh, challenging him almost to challenge him back. God's pushing him to see if Moses will push back. 
This is not a polite religious prayer. Oh Lord, whenever you're willing. It's not that kind of a prayer at all. Moses argues with God. That's what's going on. And you'll see that several other times in the Bible. There's some amazing stuff in the Psalms where this happens. These guys go one-on-one, toe-to-toe with God himself. And that's what some skeptic once said. This is why the Jews run the banks and run everything else. I mean, after all, they argued with God for 14 centuries. They can certainly argue with men. These were tough people. And so Moses and he makes an argument. This is bargaining. Eh? Bargaining. Look at how he bargains with God. Because he's got to undo. He knows God's really ticked. He knows that God could very well do exactly what he's saying in just a fraction of a second. Moses is trying to calm God down, in other words. And to work on God's heart, what does he do? Yeah, and I've never seen this mentioned in a book of prayer. But here you have Moses arguing with God and convincing of God based on a deep truth that's sitting there and lodged in God's own heart. Look at it carefully. O Lord, why does your anger burn? Why, verse 12, should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from that burning anger. Change your mind about doing harm to thy people. Now, verse 13. See why I took these these, these events in the sequence? Now, you you all studied the event of verse 13. We all went through the Abrahamic covenant. Look at it. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or Israel, thy servants to whom thou didst swear by thyself and did say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land which I have spoken I will give to your descendants that they shall inherit it forever. And so the Lord changed his mind or he repented. Now that's one of those rare passages that caused theologians all kinds of problems here because it looks like you've got the immutability of God changed here. But one of the things we want to look at carefully is verse 13 and the logic behind it. You remember when we dealt with that other historic event earlier? When we dealt with the Abrahamic covenant? You remember how God had... You remember how I said that there was that burning thing that was going through the darkness in between the slaughtered pieces that were on either side of it and it just went back and forth? And I said it was the oath of maldiction and that you could properly translate that passage by saying, God is talking, I will be damned if I do not do this for you. It's an oath of maldiction. And that's the force of that passage. Undeniably, the force in the Hebrew in that passage. Very, very powerful swearing that goes on. That's exactly, verse 13, what Moses picks up on. He goes back to when God made the original contract He goes back to the very way God swore to himself and he throws it right back in the face of God. Now, this is kind of scary stuff. And I'm not saying I would have the courage to do this at all. And I don't think many of us would. And most of us would be sitting there, you know, (laughs) what do we do now kind of thing. But can any of you suggest something that this shows about the interaction between God and man in prayer that elevates it above, shall we say, the calm, 
stereotypical religious prayer. What's happening here that you don't normally associate with nice prayers? This isn't nice praying, is it? This is tough bargaining. It's almost like God reaches out and smacks Moses and Moses turns right about and smacks God. Smacks God with his own promise. Now, obviously, God knew going into this what's going to happen. Why do you think God set this up? I mean, God's... You could say, I don't want to use this word promiscuously, but it's like God's playing with Moses' mind here. Why does God do it that way, do you suppose? What do you think that God is trying to force out of Moses? He, Moses is going to be the leader of these people. They're a sinful people. They're a people that are going to screw up. And he's got to cope with it. He's got to deal with it. And you remember, Moses naturally didn't want to. Remember the first pictures you get of Moses? And, oh, well, if I go back, they're not going to think much of me. And, and well, you know, I'm not anybody and this and that. And what God's doing, he's forcing Moses to stand up and assume authority and take the bull by the horns and do something with it. In this case, he did take the bull by the horns. Broke it. Um, but what we have here is a teaching lesson that God is giving to Moses to build him as a spiritual leader. And out of this whole passage, because we have to summarize now because time's going on, chapter 32 presents two great truths in this event. We call this the, um, the uh, covenant breaking at Sinai. And out of this covenant breaking event, we get two great truths. One is that for a holy people to submit to God, their hearts must be dealt with. They must have circumcised hearts. And this is what God says in the book of Deuteronomy. Oh, Israel, that your heart was circumcised. There must be spiritual surgery on the organ of life. This is a compulsion. We would say it in Christian terms. What you've got here is what you hear all the time. And you hear it in New Testament vocabulary, so I think we get immune to it because we hear it so often. We don't, it doesn't register any longer. It's only Christ in you that can do the life, but not you, not me, not our flesh. It has to be Christ in us that lives the life. Well, right here, you see, the natural man doesn't submit. Their required spiritual surgery has to happen. So the first great truth of this is hearts must be circumcised in order to be servants of the Lord. It does not come naturally. Second, for a sinful people to abide in fellowship with God, there must be an intercessor, a priestly before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself. Now, see the intolerance? See the, that um, problem I gave you, number three? The, in, the avoidance of peaceful coexistence? Look at what it says. Let's think about what's said in verse 12. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst. You cannot enter into peaceful coexistence with these people, ever. But rather, 
You are to tear down their altars, smash their pillars, cut down their asherim, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, sacrifice to their gods, and someone invites you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. And then it goes on and describes this. Now, in a nutshell, what is he warning about in verse 15, 16, and 17? In, in sociological, political terms, what's, what's God holding the red flag up here for? What, what would happen? He's talking about social relationships developing in a peaceful environment and intermarriages occurring. And yet that's forbidden. There is an intolerance for that kind of peaceful coexistence. That must not happen. There must always be a hostility, an animosity, a war that goes on between you and the inhabitants of this land. Let's look further. Um, in, in Numbers 33, 50. This is just a sampling of these kinds of passages. You can find more. Just look at a concordance. But I just want to convince you that it's not just an isolated passage. The critics are right that this stuff is here. They're wrong in how they're interpreting. All right. Uh, Numbers... Verse 50, uh, thir- chapter 33, verse 50. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan opposite Jericho. And this is just before they're going to go in. This is a little bit later than the other passage. Speak to the sons of Israel when you cross over the Jordan into the land of Israel. Then you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you. Destroy their figured stone. Destroy their molten images. Demolish their high places. Take possession of the land. Live in it. For I have given the land to you. Possess it. And so on. Verse 55, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes, as thorns in your sides, and they will trouble you in the land in which you live. And it shall come to pass that as I plan to do to them, so will I do to you. So clearly there's a divinely authorized intolerance to things. And to get some background and interpret this, uh, for we, we do want to leave you with some thoughts here tonight on, on how to interpret it. If you turn back to Genesis 15:16, you get some background. Way back in Abraham's day, God forecast what he was going to do. He announced beforehand. And he said in Genesis 15, in that very chapter of the Abrahamic covenant, and we read it back many months ago when we went through this, and I said that we'd return to it. Well, again, we're returning to it tonight. In Genesis chapter 15, while he was making his covenant with Abraham, he sowed a little thought in here. He said in verse 16, In the fourth generation, they, that is the sons of Abraham, shall return here, back to Palestine, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, the people that dwelt in this land, God was grooming that these people had gone negative toward God, negative volition, negative volition, negative volition, negative volition, and they just were going down in a spiral. And God said, I know how they're going to go. They're going to reject me and reject me and reject me until their hearts are so hard, they've reached rock bottom. And when they get down to this level, I'm going to order you folks in there and you're going to clean them out. 
This is going to be genocide. I want those people removed from this earth. And I'm the Lord, and that's what I said. So I want you to go in there and I want you to kill them. All of them. I don't want you intermarrying with them. I don't want you associating with them. I don't want anything left of their civilization. I want it destroyed. Animals destroyed. Religious and especially all signs of their religious beliefs. Can you imagine the ACLU in this situation? So let's turn to our notes on page 3. While I was in Texas and I lived there many years, I was given this piece of literature from the PLO. Some Arab students were demonstrating in the university where we were. and I was interested because I took some of their literature and wanted to see what they had to say. And here's an actual quote from a, from a propaganda pamphlet issued by the PLO. I'm sure it's the same today. This was 20 years ago. Under the, look at how the Arabs look upon this passage in the Bible. Under the leadership of Joshua, the Hebrews invaded the state of Canaan. Crimes of the most heinous nature were perpetrated against the inhabitants as readers of the Old Testament now. In other words, they're saying, see, Israel's still doing it to us poor Palestinians. They're always killing us. They're always murdering us. Now, this is not to justify present Israel here. I'm just saying that this is an example of the skepticism and the criticism of this passage of Scripture. Okay, now I want you to follow with me, if you will, just for the closing moments of the class, the quotes from Dr. Meredith Klein. Here is our answer. This man, I think, has one of the clearest, finest answers I've ever read to the dilemma of why is there genocide? Why is there holy war? How do we as Christians talk about loving our neighbors at the same time we're killing them? In this passage, at least. Here's Klein's quote. If Israel's conquest of Canaan were to be abdicated before an assembly of nations acting according to the provisions of common grace, underline, provisions of common grace. This is a key statement. That conquest would have to be condemned as an unprovoked aggression and moreover an aggression carried out in barbarous violation of the requirement to show all possible mercy even in the proper execution of justice. Continue the quote. The unbeliever, and this is an explanation now, and this is, follow through this and we'll, we'll cease at this and we'll pick this up next week, but in this quote is one of the finest statements of how to handle this problem. The unbeliever is the believer's neighbor today. But the reprobate is not the neighbor of the redeemed hereafter for the reason that God will set a great gulf between them. God, whose immutable nature it is to hate evil, withdrawing all favor from the reprobate, will himself hate them as sin's finished products. That's another thing to underline. That goes back to that Genesis 15, 16 path. The iniquity of the Amorites is full. Sins, finished products. And if the redeemed in glory are to fulfill their duty of patterning their ways after God's, they will have to change their attitude toward the unbeliever from one of neighborly love to one of perfect hatred, which is a holy, not a malicious passion. This, is, by the way, is not now. It's, it's in eternity. It will only be with a frank acknowledgement, and here's the substance of the answer, it will only be with a frank acknowledgement that the ordinary ethical requirements were suspended and the ethical principles of the last judgment intruded 
that the divine promises and commands to Israel concerning Canaan and the Canaanites comes into their own. See what Klein is saying? That God, remember we said when we defined God's love, we said that grace has a starting point and an ending point. Remember we said evil is bracketed, evil started there, and then it's, 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 it, the, the new creation happens and evil is put over into an eternal garbage heap called a lake of fire. So you have this period of time in between this. That's where grace operates. Grace doesn't eternally operate. What we think of it as eternally operating because we're in it now. But grace stops once the judgment occurs. Once history's over, grace is all over. Example is the history's all over for the angels. The angels have decided Satan is never going to be saved. The demons are never going to be saved. Their day of salvation, if it ever was, is over. History is closed to them. There is no grace available for them. Grace is only a temporary, historical thing in the Christian position. So therefore, what happens, and that's why I said underlying common grace, there's an ethics of common grace. And we're used to those ethics. Oh, the unbeliever loves those ethics. The ethics of grace, because it enables him the freedom to rebel against God. And he wants those ethics. He calls those the high, evolved, superior ethic. The ethic of tolerance. That's the ethics of grace. So we do have the ethics of grace. But at one point in history, to give revelation of what he is going to do at this point, God back here gave for a moment an adumbration, a small historic revelation of this that's going to happen on a mass scale over here. Holy war in the Old Testament is a preview of the wrath of God in the final end of history when he exterminates those who have finally rebelled against his gracious call to salvation. There will be no tolerance in that day. So, as you think about genocide and intolerance and these other things, these are heavy issues. And why they become so heavy is that they can't be discussed without bringing into into the discussion the return of Christ and the final judgment of history. And see, people don't want to deal with that. They want to keep safe in this ethics of common grace over here that is, is comfortable. But this is very uncomfortable. So we're going through an uncomfortable portion of the Scriptures. It's a messy portion of Scriptures. But out of it will grow, I think, a renewed appreciation for the nature of who it is we worship. Father, we thank You for who You are. And again, on this Easter day, this Easter season, we thank You that You have provided a Savior. And when we see more of who You are, it forces us to respect what you have extended to us through Christ. Now, this is not a, a religious charade. This is not a game of, of comfortable choices. This is a game of eternal choices by a God who has eternal wrath as well as eternal love. And we thank you that you have graciously illuminated our hearts to the gospel of our Savior. And we pray that you would utilize our lives to be toward our neighbor as conduits of your grace while it still can be done. If we ask this in your Savior's name, our Savior's name, Jesus Christ, amen. I'll be around here for a little Q&A afterwards for a few moments if you wish. And, but is there any... Um, any? I'm sure this must have stimulated some questions.
tonight because this is a very controversial and a very uh, upsetting to many people um, part of the Bible. I mean, I know very mature Christians that get bent out of shape going through these passages. So it's, um, it's not something that's uh, easy to deal with, but it's there. And we, it's, God wrote it into the Scripture. We can't pretend it's not there, so we have to work our way through it. Anybody got comments or anything from maybe anything? Because we last week I had to cut things off on the Q and A. Um, maybe going back to the Sinai, the Law, or um, any of those events that we want to work with. <laughs> Tell us some questions. Okay, the question is, did Moses, why ultimately did Moses have the audacity and the courage to talk to God? And I think you have to boil it down to the fact that he hung everything on God's word. That he, when, when the chips came down and he sensed God angered, angry, I think the dynamic of that conversation was God was kind of threatening. You want me to, I'm so mad, I'd like to undo my own word. And Moses, where could he park his car? I mean, where could he build his case? And I think that passage tells us that in praying, um, that before you go waltzing into God's presence sometimes hastily, if there's a real big issue in life, it helps to prepare yourself before you go to pray and think through why do you, are we giving God reasons to answer our petitions? It sounds kind of funny. I mean, why do you have to give God reasons to answer petitions? But you see what Moses is doing there? He's going back and, and building a case that if you do what you think what you're threatening God, you're going to undo the covenant that you gave with Abraham. You're going to bring your whole plan into disrepute and you're not getting the glory. And ultimately, the reasoning in that prayer becomes that you should answer this petition that I'm making to you because of your glory. Notice the petition isn't saying, oh, people are going to get hurt because the issues are so big that that's a trivial thing. I mean, it doesn't sound trivial, but you know what I mean? It's got to go, the, the the, the foundation on which Moses stands is deeper than just human hurt. It goes back to the very nature and character of God, his plan for history. There's a cosmic reason for answering this prayer. Yeah, good point. Um, that God putting pressure on Moses forced Moses to go back to the Word. Because you know, if you, those of you who you know, have read Moses and his life, you know there's several places in there he did get his eyes on people after this event. Remember, he got so ticked off at him one day, he took the stick to the rock, and he became angry at them, upset. 
by the people, and he was to suffer the problem of leaders. Leaders always get do that, and he was no different. And he just got his eyes on the problem and eyes on the people and got frustrated and mad and, and so forth. But in that moment, he didn't. At that moment, he could have looked down there and said, you know, that's not a bad idea, God. Wipe them out and let's start all over. But he didn't. He went back so that the hurt... I mean, he could have thought about hurting people. He could have thought about, yeah, get rid of them. That gets rid of my leadership problem. He could have thought about, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have my own private nation? He could have gone to any number of little mental roots in his head. But what, what came out of that wonderful intercessory prayer was he went back to the glory, character, and, and the, the glorification of God and his word. So that's one of the most amazing prayers, I think, in Scripture. I think of all the prayers I've read in Scripture, there's only two or three that come close to that one. The other one that I know my wife used, likes to use um, is in Psalm 73. It's a prayer by Asaph. And he's angry at God for allowing the nation to uh, get invaded and things are going downhill. And Asaph has the gall. I mean, if somebody, you know, somebody got up here on Sunday morning and prayed Psalm 73, I mean, there'd be some people in here wanting to get that guy out of here. Because in Psalm 73, Asaph prays, God, would you mind getting your hands out of your pockets and walk through this mess so you see it? So, those are the kind of prayers that, I don't know, when I read those, I really realize it's a kind of a rebuke to me, I guess, because we get into this, what other people think about the way our prayers sound. And I don't think at this point Moses particularly cared whether CBS or NBC was filming the event. It was, he was going at it with God. And he could care less what you thought about the prayer, what I thought about the prayer, anybody else thought about the prayer. It was one-on-one just between him and God. And I think that honesty is something that's probably refreshing to God, even though it sounds uh, nasty. In the final analysis, they're talking to one another. So, kind of interesting. But that has to got to be one of the two or three places in Scripture where pretty heavy praying going on there. Yeah, I think so. Dee's making a point that when you pray, often God will lead you back to the Word if you just persist long enough. It's almost like we have to get our spirits moving and then He steers us. The man that led me to the Lord many years ago used to say uh, to a group of us in the college campus, he used to say, guys, he said, you know, God can't steer a parked car. And his whole point was, you know, do something. Get, Get rolling and then we can get the course corrections. But if you sit there and just think, do I do this, do I do this, do I not do this? And you wind up in a total glitch, all paralyzed, tied up in knots. Now what do I do? And the best thing to do is just do anything. And like Dee says, whether it's in prayer or something else, just do something and get rolling. And then, but keep your eyes on the Lord and let him steer the car. Anybody have anything else? Yes. Oh, I think it's neat. <laughs> it's the, the, 
the cometary phenomena, you know, it's interesting in the Bible, um, there's not too much really said about um, comets and, and planets other than the fact that the word, the Greek word for planet, because I'm, I'm throwing planets in the same case as the, as the comet for this reason. Stars are relatively fixed, and planets, if you map them, only time they wander around the sky. And comets are obviously a wandering, wandering star. Um, but it's interesting. You know the Greek word to deceive and be unstable is the word planet. And it's used in a lot of the New Testament epistles for somebody who's just a wanderer, who's not rooted in the Word of God. The planets and the wandering stars are, are looked upon as pictures of a lack of stability. Um, they again and again appear in Scripture as, as emblems um, in the very vocabulary. And it's kind of neat that the word planet is planeo in the Greek, from which the planet gets. And they were called planets because they don't, they're not fixed against the this, this fixed star background. The interesting thing from the creationist point of view of what's going on out there is that that, that comet, um, as well as all comets, have very short lifetimes in the order of thousands of years. And the debate over that comet is that it's wearing out. I mean, obviously, matter is coming off the tail. You can see it out there tonight. Well, it's going to wear out because the, the, finally it loses all matter. Well, if the universe is millions and millions and millions of years old, uh, how can we still have comets? Why aren't they all worn out? Well, the evolutionist has to answer that, and he has an answer, is that somewhere in the solar system, matter is entering the system from somewhere. In other words, there has to be fresh matter intruded, because obviously those things, you know, after a couple of thousand years, they're gone. So now the question is, where, where do we, why do we continue to have these things? So it represents a kind of a neat uh, conundrum for the other side. But they always like to say it, like tonight with these 39 people or something kill themselves. They always like to say, oh, see, see, that's a religious cult of some sort. And religious people are so hokey that, that they see these things and go crazy. Well, maybe pagan religious people do, but a biblical Christian says, who's in charge? I don't care what the comet does. Who's ruling the universe? And another point to think about that comet, too, is if one of those things ever came close to the Earth, we'd have a flood because of the gravitational field ripping up the seas and just throwing them across the continent. I mean, the end of civilization. What covenant have we studied that tells us that that's not going to happen? Noahic covenant. All right, if that's so, then the implication of the Noahic covenant is that every comet has to be under his control because if just one of them was loose, it could violate the terms of the, of the covenant of Noah. So it's comforting, again, to, to always think of these things. You know, you go out and see a rainbow. Think of that. That's a picture of what the throne of God looks like. It's, just, it's, an, it's a physical, geophysical, 3D, uh, what do you call a hologram, if you want, of what the throne of God looks like. And you know, thought to go out and look at a rainbow and thank him. Hey, I saw your signature today, Con. That's kind of neat. And with the comet, to be able to say that we know the one who controls all that. So. The whole idea, whether it's a comet or anything else, or people killing themselves or what, what we want to do as Christians is automatically ingest that material and suck it up inside a biblical frame of reference and, and just do it again and again. 
Because when we don't do it, what we do is we start packing stuff in our brains and it sits there undigested and can and undermine us. It becomes tools for the Satan's t- workshop when it's not encased, as it were, in, in biblical vocabulary and thought about. And the more you do that, the more protection you have against temptations and so forth. Okay, if there aren't any other questions, I guess we'll, we'll take off here. Okay. Next week, we're going to start with that Klein statement. So if you look at some of those passages and um, get an exposure to some of those, I guess we have five more events, very famous stories. If you've been to Sunday school at all in your life, you've seen, heard all of them. But what we want to do as Christians is, in this Thursday night class is go through and see what the grand motifs are behind these events. And tonight we just introduced holy war. And that's what we want to continue in the study. The justification for what holy war is.